All right. Well, welcome to the Edgewood 4G podcast. Uh, this is dropping the week after Christmas. And so I thought I would entitle this Dealing with the Post Christmas Blahs. <laughs> hey, this is Pastor Brian. Uh, it's a joy to meet with you through this um, forum. Um, up here in the studio, if you're part of Edgewood, uh, it's also known as the mezzanine, or if you're not sure where that is, if you're in the Edgewood kitchen, we're up above there. I'm looking out Dave, looking out at Dave, our tech director and the executive producer of the 4G podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to sharing a message that I think you may find helpful in these days after Christmas. So as exciting as Christmas can be, it can also be an excruciating time of the year. Listen to these words from a journal for counselors. We are told that Christmas for Christians should be the happiest time of year, an opportunity to be joyful and grateful with family, friends, and colleagues. Yet, According to the National Institute of Health, Christmas is the time of year that people experience a high incidence of depression. One survey reported that 45% of respondents dreaded the festive season. It appears to have more to do with unrealistic expectations and excessive self-reflection for many people. (laughs) After all, it was Elvis who popularized a song called Blue Christmas. That was 60 years ago, which, well, I won't sing for you right now. Some time ago, I remember hearing about Greek Orthodox and Armenian priests who came to blows in a dispute over how to clean the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem following the Christmas celebrations. So priests were actually seen swinging brooms and throwing stones at each other. Seven people were injured in this 15-minute fight on the site where many believe Jesus was born. (laughs) I guess we could say Christmas can lead to conflict and chaos. Well, now that Christmas has crescendoed, some of us are back to our complicated and chaotic lives. Others of us have moved from ho, ho, ho to humdrum. Has your fa-la-la-la turned to blah, blah, blah? Uh, Some time ago, I read a powerful post. I referenced this several weeks ago on this podcast, but perhaps you'll find it helpful. Um, If you didn't hear it, and if you did um, hear this excerpt, uh, I think it's worth repeating. It may apply to you. If it doesn't, it applies to people you know. It's called Holidays and Empty Chairs. I was reminded of the deep sorrow that many feel during this season of the year. Though you may indeed have so many reasons to feel fortunate and to give thanks, what this season is now marked by more than anything else is absence. Surrounded by noise and activity in life, your eyes and your heart can't help but drift to that quiet space, that space that now remains unoccupied, the cruel vacancy of the empty chair. Though they're supposed to nurture gratitude and deposit peace within us, the holidays have a way of magnifying loss. 
in the middle of all the celebration and thanksgiving, reminding us of our incompleteness, our lack, our mourning. The empty chair is different for everyone, though it is equally intrusive. For some, it is a place of a vigil. For some, the chair is a memorial. For some, it is a fresh wound. This may be the first time the chair has been empty for you, or you may have grown quite accustomed to the subtraction. You know, we don't spend much time on this, but I think Joseph and Mary had a letdown as well. And they almost had an empty chair. While Luke's account has no songs of sadness, Matthew's narrative is drenched in tears and fears in pain and problems, lament and loss. The picture's not pretty, and it's usually kept off the cover of our Christmas cards and out of our Christmas carols. Well, let's focus on three post-Christmas scenes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Well, let's first familiarize ourselves with what happened and then lock into some lessons that will help us beat the blahs. Here's our main truth I hope we get. Even when you're blue, do what you know to be true. But first, some observations. Each of these violent vignettes ends with a reference to fulfilled scripture. Notice verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, verse 23, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Amazingly, the coming of Christ fulfilled some 300 prophecies. Augustine liked to say, in the Old Testament, the New Testament lies concealed, and in the New the old lies revealed. Uh, Secondly, God used the revelation of dreams to get Joseph to move. We see this in verses 13, 19, and 22. And also in Matthew 120, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream to move him to take Mary as his wife. Observation number three. Every time Jesus and Mary are mentioned together, Jesus is always first and foremost. Check out verses 13 and 14. Rise, take the child and his mother. And he rose and took the child and his mother. And again in verses 20 and 21. Rise, take the child and his mother. And he rose and took the child and his mother. Normally, the focus is on the adult, and the child is spoken of in reference to the parent. We might expect a mother with her child. The emphasis here is reversed with the emphasis upon the person of Jesus Christ. The child is a threat to Herod, not Mary or Joseph. Oh, would you also notice that Mary is not given any title like Queen of Heaven or Mother of God or co-redeemer. Reminds me, when we lived in Mexico, Beth and I went into a church. We like going into churches and observing the architecture and just kind of the message that was being communicated uh, with artwork and everything else inside. And in one particular church, we were stunned, flabbergasted 
our eyes filled with tears. Because as we looked up at the front of the church where the altar is, there was this statue of Mary, front and center, the Virgin of Guadalupe, huge. I I don't even know how big. Let, Let me just say like 20 to 30 feet high. And down at her feet, this small figurine of Jesus. Friends, that's not how it should be. It's not. Jesus should have preeminence, not just prominence. Oh, let me also add that we see how Joseph is not the real father of Jesus. The text doesn't say about Joseph, take your son. Here's what it says, take the child. All right, observation number four. God is divinely directing these events. God is not a passive observer, but he's rather the supreme mover. He's orchestrating everything according to his plan and for his ultimate glory. His providence is profoundly evident. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I like what John Wesley once said. I read the newspaper to see how God is governing the world. (laughs) Oh, that's good. All right, let's consider the first scene. There's three of them. Scene number one, escape to Egypt. A Sunday school teacher asked her class to draw pictures of their favorite Bible stories. She was puzzled by Kyle's picture, which showed four people on an airplane. So she asked him which story it was meant to represent. Kyle said, the flight to Egypt. Well, I see, and that must be Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, the teacher said. But who's the fourth person? The young boy exclaimed, oh, that's Pontius, the pilot. (laughs) All right, I know that was a bad joke. All right, while there is a flight to Egypt... The pilot is not Pontius, but God himself. The first part of God's providential plan to protect his son was to warn the wise men to return by a different route. Why? So Herod would not know the exact whereabouts of Jesus. And after the wise men head back home, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph while he's dreaming and says in verse 13, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That word flee has the idea of moving hastily to escape danger. We see in verses 14 and 15 that Joseph jumps into action. He believed and he boogied. He didn't debate. No, he departed. Once he heard, he hurried to obey, not even waiting until the morning. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll recognize the significance of Egypt. On the one hand, it represents slavery and stress. On the other, it signifies safety and security. This trip from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt was about 80 miles long. And then they likely traveled an additional 250 miles to Alexandria, 
That was a city known to be home for one million Jews at this time. The total trip could have taken several weeks. So Matthew compares the Jews coming out of Egypt with Jesus being called out of Egypt as a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. This is called a typology or an illustration. It's really not a specific prophecy, but here we see that Jesus represents or corresponds to the nation of Israel. Remember that God called his people son, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So friend, even when you're blue, do what you know to be true. Let's consider the second scene. Number two, the butcher in Bethlehem. Herod is now hot because the wise men had outwitted him. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. While born into a politically well-connected family, Herod was destined for a life of hardball and power brokering. At 25 years old, he became the governor of Galilee. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate named him King of the Jews. It was a title the Jews hated because he was anything but religious, and that explains why he went berserk when he heard that a baby had been born King of the Jews. Now, soon after becoming king, Herod wiped out several bands of guerrillas who were terrorizing the countryside. He held tightly to the reins of power. He brutally removed anyone who got in his way. Over the years, he killed many, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, two of his sons, and even his wife. Caesar Augustus reportedly said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because pigs were protected by law. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said he was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to all his passions. Well, ever since an enemy poisoned Herod's father, who was a king himself, Herod was beset with paranoia. He went to great lengths to make sure a secret ingredient never ended up in his burrito bowl. <laughs> uh, when he became king... He commissioned tens of thousands of slaves to build over 10 emergency fortresses, all heavily armed and well-provisioned. In addition, he established an elaborate network of spies, and anyone with a plot to dethrone Herod was sniffed out and snuffed out before he could eat breakfast. Those who opposed him would be invited to a midnight swim in the Jordan River with a cement bathrobe on. Verse 16 tells us, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. The word tricked can also be translated as mocked and made a fool of. As a result, he becomes furious, which means violently enraged and exceedingly indignant. He then does something worthy of Hitler or Stalin or Kim Jong-un or orders the cold-blooded murder of all males less than two years of age. Reminds me of Hamas. Herod the Great had become the butcher of Bethlehem. 
He was perhaps the ultimate oxymoron in history, rich in what most of us consider valuable. He was totally bankrupt as a human being. He was addicted to power, obsessed with possessions, focused on prestige, and filled with paranoia. Now, notice how all this fulfills prophecy, verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This text comes from Jeremiah 31.15, and the context refers to people getting ready to be sent into captivity. Ramah is located about five miles north of Jerusalem and historically was the holding place for Jewish captives as they were prepared for deportation to Babylon, much like Terezin was for prisoners before they were sent to Auschwitz. So it's a time of exceeding anguish, widespread weeping, especially by mothers for their children. Rachel was known as the mother of the nation who died while giving birth to Benjamin. While she is buried in Bethlehem in profound poetic imagery, her tears are figuratively spilling into the soil again as mothers are weeping and crying inconsolably. Some of you might be experiencing the grief over the loss of a child or grandchild. I can't even imagine the pain you're experiencing. Others of you are sorrowing about the loss of your spouse or parent, your family member or friend. I pray you find comfort in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's so sad that the Babylonians slaughtered so many children. Several centuries later, Herod's hatred leads to the deaths of babies in and around Bethlehem. Some 40 years later, up to a million people were killed in A.D. 70, including infants and children, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and then Hitler exterminated some six million Jews. Are you aware that Rachel is still weeping today? If you lean in, you can hear her loud lamentation for the nearly 65 million babies that have been aborted in our country since 1973. Friend, even when you're blue, do what you know to be true. Let's look now at the final scene in Matthew 2, the return to Nazareth. Sometime later, Herod dies, an angel appears in another dream to Joseph and says in verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. This echoes Exodus 4.19, where God said to Moses, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. We read in verse 21 that after Joseph heard this, he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now we know from history that Herod died of foul and fatal diseases at the age of 70. After making it back to the Bethlehem area, Joseph finds out that Herod's son, Archelaus, is now on the throne. And he becomes afraid because he's even more sinister than Herod. He began his reign as king by massacring 3,000 people. I wonder if Joseph was getting frustrated and fed up. He and his young family had been gone from Nazareth for a long time, and once again he has a dream. Verse 23 says, And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prof- what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called, listen, a Nazarene. While there's not one specific verse Matthew is referencing, at least I can't find it, 
Notice the plural prophets. He's likely using a wordplay to show that Jesus was the branch, the Nezer, from Isaiah 11, verse 1, and was despised, Nezer, from Isaiah 53, 3. Jesus was not only sent as an outcast to Egypt, he also went to live in a place for outcasts. I'm reminded of what Jerome said in the 4th century, Jesus was born in a dung heap because that's where he knew he'd find us. Jesus was often called the Nazarene as a title of derision, an expressive way of saying that he was despised and not influential. Nathaniel summed out what people thought of this town in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No one lived in Nazareth except those who could not afford to live anywhere else. Even in his death, the sign on the top of the cross was used to mock Jesus. The letters I-N-R-I. I were the Latin abbreviation for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, let's synthesize these scenes so we can figure out how you and I can beat the post-Christmas blahs. Number one, exhibit instant obedience. While we have no record of Joseph ever saying anything, His action sure spoke loudly. In every case, when Joseph is told what to do, he instantly obeys, as he first did in Matthew 1.24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. In scene one, when he heard the angel tell him to go to Egypt, he didn't wait until morning, but got up while it was still dark and departed. In scene two, when he's told to go back to Israel, he does so immediately. Then when he's warned in a dream to not stay in Judea, in scene three, he leads Mary and her son back on the road where they head north to Nazareth. Write this down. Obedience is seldom convenient, but it's always correct. Even when you're blue, do what you know to be true. Something Beth and I heard in a parenting course when our daughters were young is spot on. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The word rise in verse 13 means to be roused from inactivity. Just like us, Joseph had to be prodded from inaction to action. The word take means to take your responsibility seriously. Joseph does not ask for more information, nor does he request more time. Once the Lord says it, that settles it. He doesn't ask questions or make a deal or tell the Lord that he'll obey later on. He doesn't complain how hard it is to uproot his young family or wonder about travel accommodations. He just gets up and goes. Reminds me of what Abraham did, Hebrews 11.8, when he went out not knowing where he was going. So here's a question. In what area is the Lord expecting your instant obedience right now? You can't control a lot of what's happening in your life right now, but you can control your obedience. Is there something he's prompting you to do, but you've been delaying? Psalm 119.60 says, I hasten and I knew do not delay to obey your commandments. If you want to obey, don't delay. Is there a decision you've been putting off? An ungodly relationship you need to sever? An application you need to send in? Is there a gift you need to give? A missionary you need to support? A commitment you need to make? A person you need to forgive? 
What about deciding to totally live out our four G's this next year to gather, to grow, to give, and to go like never before? Don't play at it. Do it. Go after it. Decide right now on the cusp of a new year to live for the glory of God. Number two, expect constant opposition. Have you noticed that every time hope is born, hard times are sure to follow? While we may want a sentimental and sanitized Christmas, that's really not an option. You see, properly understood, Christmas will take us out of our comfort zone. It already has for many of us. Hebrews 11.13 says that we are aliens and strangers on earth. This post-Christmas world is neither our hope nor our home. Just as Joseph endured opposition for the sake of the baby, as those who bear his name, we should expect, expect no less. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Joseph learned that to be caretaker of the Christ child meant that his simple and quiet life was over because good news always has enemies. I don't know who said this, but it's so true. In order to see the babe in Bethlehem, one must pass through Jerusalem and awaken King Herod. And there are Herods everywhere because Herod is simply the seed of the serpent. Revelation 21.17 tells us that Satan is intent on wiping out believers. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Since Satan couldn't murder Emmanuel as an infant, he is out to assassinate the offspring of Eve. And that's you and that's me. Number three, embrace God's operation. I love this quote. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, well, then the real work of Christmas begins. God is weaving everything together to accomplish his will. The happenings of history work out in a way that will bring him ultimate glory, for he is the God of history. There is nothing that surprises him, nothing that slows him down, because he rules and reigns. King Herod was strong, but he was nothing compared to King Jesus. Life is often not like what we planned. Blahs come, plans change, life happens. But God is great, and he is good, and he's in charge. God providentially takes care of us and prepares us for what hasn't even happened yet. That means he brings blessings from brokenness, triumph from tragedy, and like we like to say and celebrate recovery, he can take our mess and turn it into a message. Hold on to these three truths. God provides what we need. Hey, think about this. Gold and frankincense and myrrh brought by the wise men? Well, there's a lot of significance and symbolism, but also they were liquid assets. They were easy to transport for the family. Secondly, God is always present. God never left Joseph and Mary to figure things out alone. He was with them, reminding them that Herod could not kill hope. Number three, God's purposes will prevail. Nothing and no one can thwart his plans. 
Now, God doesn't always tell us everything about the future, does he? Uh, He doesn't tell us much at all about the future, except for what we read in the Bible. And we know he wins. And he know, we know that all of his promises, all of the prophecies will be fulfilled. So let me share a principle about God's will. It's actually quite profound, which means it's not original with me. Here it is. If you want to know God's will, then do the will of God that you already know. If you want to know God's will, then do the will of God that you already know. Many times we ask God to tell us what to do, and God said, God says, I've already told you in my word. So even when you're blue, do what you know to be true. I find it very interesting that God did not tell Joseph to go to Nazareth until he had first obeyed and went to Egypt and then to Judea. To Judea. The old adage is true. God doesn't steer parked cars. And if you want God to guide you, then start moving on those things you already know he wants you to do. Now, we don't have time to list all of God's revealed will, um, but it's filled, the Bible's filled with his will for our life. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, and this is God's will for you, your sanctification, and then he defines it that you avoid sexual immorality. Well, we know that's God's will for us. We know his will for us is to gather with God's people, which means no excuses except when you're sick or out of town. And I know some people can't gather with God's people. I get that. And I'm glad we have online services for that. But some of us are just playing. We're lazy. We're stuck in a rut. Hey, As the new year dawns, commit to gather with God's people. Commit to grow. If you've not been in a growth group, this is the year. If you've not been discipled, contact Pastor Kyle. Jump online. Uh, We'll get you connected. Perhaps this is the year you can help someone else grow. If you've not been tithing, if you've not been giving, develop the discipline of regular giving, of giving at least 10%. Some people ask me, uh, what do you think about the tithe? And I say, well, the tithe is a good yardstick. The tithe is a good place to start. (laughs) God wants us to be generous, to give proportionally, and then to go with the gospel, get to know your neighbors, build bridges, be intentional, live on mission to our neighbors and to the nations. Uh, We still have space on some of our missions trips this summer. If you're not able to go, how about supporting and sending those who are going? These high schoolers are going. Uh, Many of them don't have the means to go, but perhaps you can come alongside them. Um, Beth and I love supporting high schoolers. Here's why. High schoolers and young adults, they go and experience missions. They may become lifelong missionaries. Lucy walks up to Charlie Brown just before Christmas and says to him, Charlie Brown, since it is Christmas, I suggest we lay aside all our differences and be friends for this season of the year. Charlie Brown responds, wow, that's a great idea, Lucy. But why does it have to be just at this time of the year? Why can't we be friends all year long? 
Lucy looks at Charlie Brown with disgust and asks, what are you, a fanatic or something? (laughs) Friends, it's time for us to be a bit more fanatical in our faith because Christmas changes everything. And let's let it change us all year long. Most of us could stand to be a bit more passionate, a bit more energetic, uh, less like sluggards, and more devoted in our faith. Let's do that, number one, by exhibiting instant obedience, number two, expecting constant opposition, and number three, embracing God's operation. Friend, because even when you're blue, and I know some of you are, do what you know to be true. Wow, we're so glad that you've uh, listened to this Edgewood 4G podcast. And I I encourage you, if you would, leave us a review, uh, leave a rating, uh, let others know about this. Um, Our heart behind this is Pastor Kyle. uh, Really, this was his idea uh, that I jumped aboard quickly. Uh, The deacons got behind it and making sure this studio happened. But, but here's the reason for it. We want to resource you so that you take your next step with Jesus. We're not just here chatting. No, we want to give good biblical content. Uh, after the first of the year, uh, I have an interview coming up of just an amazing, um, well, just, yeah, you'll, you'll have to tune in first week in January. Uh, We're going to try to go video on that one as well as audio. Uh, And then the following week, Pastor Kyle is going to be interviewing someone with a dynamic testimony, a member here at Edgewood. And all I'll say is that God used Anchor for the Soul in his life. And this young man had the privilege of meeting Pastor Ray Pritchard when uh, Ray was here a year ago for our Prophecy Conference. Well, thanks for uh, checking in today. Uh, Trust that this week between Christmas and New Year is refreshing for you or whenever you're listening to this podcast and that you live uh, wide open for God. Live on mission for the fame of his glorious name. Why? Because he deserves it. We'll talk to you again soon.